Welcome back, folks. Good to have you with us here on the Mark Steiner Show on your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. And uh, before we jump into our conversation, I'll remind you the Mark Steiner Show and our conversations are brought to you in part by MeQ Baltimore's Credit Union, offering a full range of financial services. MeQ Baltimore's Credit Union has been helping its members and its community prosper for the last 80 years. When you invest in yourself, MeQ invests in you. Remember, it's a credit union, not just a bank. belongs to you. Money comes back in the end. More information at www.mecu.com or signershow.org is MeQ, Baltimore Credit Union's banner. So we are joined here in studio today by four women who are deeply involved in immigration and immigration rights uh, as lawyers. And many people we have talked to over the last several weeks have been very kind of terrified about what could come next. You talk to people who have been in this country from countries like Iraq and Iran and other places, or Mexico or El Salvador or Guatemala, uh, who have been here. Somebody abiding the family may be a citizen. Parents may not be citizens. Children may be citizens, and their parents may not be citizens. Can they can take people away? There are reports of ICE raids in Baltimore. We don't know the veracity of that or not. We've just heard those kind of rumors in other media. Did that take place? We don't know. But we do know raids are taking place across the country. There's massive confusion about the executive order from Donald Trump that uh, uh, the, our lead, one of my guests here emailed us, and I tried to, to wade through it as much as I could this morning to get an understanding of what that executive order said. Uh, and what, what weight does that have? And how can the White House challenge our federal court saying you have no right to be uh, commenting on this or making rules around immigration policy? Only the president can. So we'll get into that and a great deal more. We are here with, more, with uh, let me go through our guests, uh, Rena Shaw, who we've been in contact with, is, is, excuse me, Executive Director of the Maryland Access to Justice Commission, former Director of Human Rights Project at the Maryland Legal Aid Bureau. Rena, good to have you in the house. Welcome. Good to be here. Thank you. Uh, Maureen Sweeney is with us. She's Director of the Immigration Clinic at the University of Maryland Carey School of Law since 2004, founding member of the Maryland Immigrant Rights Coalition. Maureen, welcome to the studio. Good to have you with us. Thank you. Good to be here. Anadine Wettstein is with us, who is heads the immigration program for the Maryland Office of Public Defender, formerly the director of the American Immigration Council's Legal Action Center. Nadine, welcome. Good to have you with us. Thank you, Mark. And Serene Shabaya is with us. She is a civil rights attorney in Washington, D.C., was one of the organizers of the Dulles Justice Coalition created in response to recent travel bans and is former director of the ACLU of Maryland's Immigration Rights Program. And Serene, good to have you in the house as well. Good well, to welcome be back. back. Thank you. 410-319-8888 is the number here. To join in on this conversation, you can tweet us at Mark Steiner. Uh, you can also email us at talk at steinershow.org. Whether you have thoughts about this whole immigration issue uh, in a broader sense or, from, or you have very specific questions about your own lives, your family, friends, We'll try to answer this as well as we can. We do have one Spanish speaker in the house here, 410-319-8888. So do join us here. We're looking forward to your thoughts and questions and ideas. So there's so much confusion here. Um, and let me just, I think, let's begin with the news of the day for the moment. So you have this executive order that was challenged in the federal court by a number of states. Um, and so far, the, the courts have... Um, said the ban was not constitutionally correct. What does that mean? And B, what does it mean when the president's spokespeople say that the courts have no right to intervene here, that this is the president's prerogative? So what's the reality? Who would like to begin? I can Serene. take this one. Serene, go ahead. <laughs> um, well, so I think one of the things that should be clear is that this executive order uh, specifically addressed itself to people coming from Muslim-majority countries. And effectively, the way that we're seeing it play out is that it's uh, kind of making good on a campaign promise to ban Muslims from the United States of America. This is really, we have to call it what it is. This is what this order is. It's a Muslim ban. Um, I think it's a very confusing sort of uh, the various court orders that have happened uh, and how things have played out on the ground are a little bit confusing, in part because uh, Customs and Border P Protection sort of slow walked their uh, compliance with these court orders. So there was an emergency stay that, that was nationwide in New York uh, initially. Uh, then there were decisions from Boston. There was finally a decision from Washington State, along with some other sort of individual decisions about individual people who were locked out by this travel ban, um, who the court said should be able to let, be let in one by one. So this landscape was sort of developing. In the meantime, I think CBP, which is the, the kind of the police force that, that polices the border, um, was not 
immediately complying or sort of stopping its, um, uh, I guess, implementation of this travel ban. Uh, this, of course, is a very uh, big problem. It's very dangerous. But I will say that uh, it is not sustainable, right? Like the, our system of government is based on three co-equal branches. And you can't have an executive that absolutely refuses to abide by court orders. And we did see that, in fact, once it became clear that this is how the this was the direction of where the court orders were going, there is now uh, complete compliance with the with the travel with the suspension of the travel ban. So people are now being allowed in. They are being able to travel back here. Um, and you know, I think what we're seeing, though, on the flip side of it, is that the communities that have been affected by this are extremely scared and frightened. Um, and because these travel ban, because the the sort of court stays are temporary. Um, and not, you know, final. There hasn't been a final ruling that says this is unconstitutional. There's just a temporary suspension that says, you know, we think this is likely going to be found unconstitutional, so stop enforcing it for now. People are understandably very nervous. Um, so what would that path be? I mean, if if A, the Obama, Obama <laughs> A, the Trump administration uh, says we, we could take this to the Supreme Court and we're contemplating it, what does that mean? Nadine? Well, it it's not clear entirely what it would mean. It's not clear whether the Supreme Court would agree to hear it. The court has to agree to hear something. Uh, Which wouldn't be this year, most likely, right? Probably. It would certainly be in a while. Um, <laughs> but it also is very unusual for a temporary restraining order, which is what this was, to even be appealed, to even have the courts hear it at all. Huh. Um, but I think the other concern is that the Trump administration could try to to try to hijack that process by issuing a new order, which would try to paper over some of the more offensive parts of the original order, and to try to try to pass some constitutional muster in a new order. And then the issue would be what happens to the original litigation. And so you'd have multiple multiple tracks and really lots and lots of confusion about whether the agencies, I think the, the issue is whether the agencies are supposed to apply these orders or not apply the orders to actual real people on the ground. So I should also say there are, so the the order that's gotten the most publicity is of course the, the, the as Serene calls it, the Muslim ban. Um, but there are two other orders, one on so-called border security and one on interior enforcement. And I think both of those are really important too. Yes, that we need to talk, so both the, of those, right. So the right, border right, security right. is the order that talks about building a wall. Um, and it also directs the agencies within 30 days of the order. This just shows how unrealistic these, these orders are and sort of like from outer space. The, um, the order, the border security order directs all federal agencies within 30 days of the order to tell the administration all of the aid that comes from, that, that is supplied to Mexico. Um, and, and then within 60 days, the administration is supposed to, all of the agencies are supposed to produce a comprehensive report to the administration on aid to Mexico. So that's just one of the examples. But um, there are lots of other examples of how sort of outrageous these orders are. There, there are three, as I said, three different orders. And the third one is? The, th the third one is about interior enforcement. Interior enforcement, right, and right. And that's the one that encourages local jurisdictions, which is a very large concern for us here in Maryland. It encourages local jurisdictions to cooperate with the federal government and threatens to cut off funding. Um, to jurisdictions that don't do that. So how does that affect how does that affect places like Maryland? Well, it, and Baltimore. Yeah, it um, the, especially the interior uh, enforcement um, executive order is going to um, have a big impact uh, because there are a lot of uh, jurisdictions here in Maryland that have decided for very good reasons, including community policing concerns and trust in the police, that they don't want to be involved in federal immigration. Uh, enforcement and uh, the the interior executive order uh, encourages and tries to strong arm jurisdictions into that kind of cooperation. Um, what that means is that people who are themselves non-citizens or have non-citizens in their families are less likely to call the police when they're in danger or when they have information about a crime and that makes the whole community less safe. Uh, and so that's that's part of what's happening here. It remains to be seen exactly how that's going to play out from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Um, but that's one of the things that uh, that we're looking at. Of course, there's also the other large part of that order is um, a new set of so-called priorities for enforcement for immigration enforcement. And the priorities are pretty much everybody. Um, it's extremely broad. The Obama administration had a set of priorities that um, 
that focused on people who committed had been convicted of serious crimes um, and other security threats. Um, they also uh, they had a, a big emphasis on uh, drunk driving charges, uh, which maybe seemed a little bit out of proportion to some of us involved. Um, but the, the the new order prioritizes not only everybody who's con been convicted of a serious crime, everybody who's con been convicted of any crime, no matter what, everybody who's been accused of a crime, if as long as they haven't been acquitted, and even anyone who's committed acts that could be charged as a crime. What does that mean? Well, that's a great question. <laughs> I mean, it means it means. I, you know, we probably all fall into that category of people who have who've committed acts that could be charged as a crime. Um, one of the concerns is how that gets interpreted. Um, everything we've seen is the, uh, the uh, desire in the federal administration, at least, to interpret that really broadly. Um, so, and, and I guess in our state in some ways, Rena, this is really confusing because you have jurisdictions like Baltimore, uh, jurisdictions like the People's Republic of Tacoma Park. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then you have Hartford County and Frederick, yeah. which have very different understandings of whether they're going to cooperate with ICE. And so I think people who have family in different places and live here are really confused about what could happen and how it could happen. Um, this is very true. So, um, you know, being someone who's not sort of an immigration specialist, uh, you know, the first thing that I thought of when I read that, you know, on Saturday morning, there was all these ice raids. And I was like, well, how right. does this how does this apply to people, friends and family that I know in Maryland? And I think that's really what people sort of want to dig into and know. And right now it is specific. So there are the two counties that you mentioned with Harford County and Frederick County, where they have these special agreements with the federal government. The, they're called 287G agreements. I was about to ask that, that term. I was going to go ahead. Yeah. Right. So perhaps the, you know, the, the others would be able to dig into it more. But these agreements essentially allow for local law enforcement um, to you know, act on behalf of ICE, essentially, uh, be there on the ground. Um, there was that report um, a few weeks ago where, you know, an Indian woman uh, who was a citizen right. um, was walking in Hartford County. In Bel Air. In Bel Air. She right. was just walking. Right. And she was pulled, she was, you know, pulled in and questioned uh, about her immigration status. So it does allow local law enforcement um, to do that. And then it, do, it does raise concern because I think the questions would be, um, you know, being an immigrant myself, I'm a citizen. Um, but nonetheless, if, if you're brown and, you know, and, and I think these orders do not distinguish between sort of undocumented, green card holders, et cetera. So there's a large pool of people um, that could be impacted um, if you have a criminal history, but it's not, uh, you know, that severe even um, if you're just accused of a crime. So there is a lot of confusion. And, and I think that's just, um, you know, those things are, are kind of worked out on a case by case basis. The other thing that I think folks will want to talk about is that what happens to folks if they're involved in an ICE raid and they get swept up, they're pulled into, you know, detention centers and there's three different uh, counties uh, Howard County and Wooster County and uh, Frederick Frederick County, and uh, you know, there those local jails can act as ICE detention centers. Um, you know, I'll leave it up to the experts to talk, sort of talk about well, what happens once people are there. But I think you know, in some ways, we don't want to alarm the community. But in other ways, I think people have to know their rights. What could happen, and what should they do? And folks, before we go, maybe I'll come right over to you, but let me just say to listeners, 410-319-8888, if you have a question and you'd rather write by email, anonymously, it's fine, talk at steinershow.org, or you can call in and not use your name. If you have a question, you're worried about your status, who you are, somebody in your family, and are nervous about that, feel free just to call in without a name at 410-319-8888. I'm sorry, Nadine. So to um, add to what Rena said, I think it's important to emphasize that ICE arrests have been going on for years. Um, the Obama administration deported a lot of people, hundreds of thousands of people, and that, as Maureen said, I think what we're looking at now is just expanding their ability to indiscriminately pick people up. So it does apply to people who have green cards. It does apply to anybody who's not a U.S. citizen. So anyone who's not a U.S. citizen who the government thinks may have committed a crime and would be deportable is they are now authorized to arrest that person and 
take them into ICE custody. So I'll just explain briefly the point that um, uh, that Rena brought up. So I mean, initially they're taken to Baltimore, and then they may be held in one of three county jails in Maryland um, for ICE processing. And this is even if they haven't been convicted of a crime or even a serious crime. So this is pretty pernicious and it's happening already. So when people talk about raids, I think what's happening maybe nationwide is that ICE is going into areas and looking for one person but arresting three or four or five other people at the same time, which was not happening with the Obama administration but does seem to be happening now and certainly is could be happening in Maryland um, also. Because Maryland can't stop it. Well, ICE has the authority to arrest people that it thinks are deportable and subject to being deported. So yes, it could. It certainly could do that. Now, um, there are uh, there is a bill in the Maryland legislature called the Trust Act that attempts to ameliorate some of the cooperation. Um, you know, there's some federal law that says local jurisdictions may not prohibit cooperation with ICE. So. There are a lot of ins and outs that I'm not sure we have time to get into right here. We, we have plenty of time. We've got a good 40, 50 minutes to get in. <laughs> <40 minutes. laughs> you, you look how you want to add something to that, Maureen. Um, well, the, um, there's a whole range of cooperation that local jurisdictions can engage in or not engage in. And I think that's where they have some control. ICE, as Nadine says, has the right to, to come in and enforce the federal law. But local jurisdictions have ways to... Um, either participate in that or choose not to participate in that. For example, there's um, something called an ICE detainer, which is a request from the federal government to hold on to somebody who's in state custody um, so that the federal agents can come and pick him or her up. Uh, and that's a, that's a request. It's not an order, and there's no, it's not mandatory to comply with that. So jurisdictions decide whether they want to participate in that or not. And that is, sometimes it goes to questions of community policing and building trust in the community. Sometimes it's financial. The federal government does not reimburse for the time that, the extra time that that person is held. Uh, so different jurisdictions have different, different ways of looking at that. But for a number of reasons, over the course of the Obama administration, those jurisdictions have already decided not to cooperate uh, and now are is beginning Baltimore to get one pressure. Of those? Baltimore has, Baltimore is in a little bit of a, um, a different position because it doesn't have control of its jails. They're state-run facilities. So that's right. So Baltimore has that's declared right. itself a welcoming city, but doesn't really have the, the Whatever that power. Means. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, there's and and that's one of the one of the things to point out about all three of these executive orders is that they're they contain words, terms that are not really legal terms. Okay. So the the travel ban talks about entry which is not a legal term in the immigration law. The, the term in immigration law is admission. You're admitted to the country or you're not admitted to the country. But so they use the term entry, which is in some ways, which does appear in the federal law, but is very vague for, for most purposes. Um, sanctuary city is another one. Um, you know, what is a sanctuary city? Does it mean that you're a sanctuary city if you don't honor ICE detainers? I don't know, because there's no legal definition of that term. But that's that's a, a term. It's it's really a political term. Right. It's right. It's these a, are these are right. political documents right. that then have serious legal. It's a social construct in a political term way right. of looking at the issue. Right. What, and, go ahead, Sarah. Yeah, and I was going to say another thing that all three orders have in common is that they implicate some very basic fundamental constitutional rights and were written without regard to those rights. So, for example, when we're talking about the ice raids example. Yeah. Um, if police or ICE or anybody else has a warrant that is signed by a federal judge that has been reviewed and looked at and says, you can go arrest this person at this particular location, then they can go and arrest someone at their home. But the reality is that the way ICE usually does it is they just show up at 5 a.m. in the morning without a warrant with some administrative piece of paper signed by an ICE employee that says warrant on it, but it's not an actual warrant that's signed by a judge. And they sort of bully their way into people's homes where actually People have a right not to open the door when when ICE comes knocking, but very few people know that, and very few people are able to exercise that. Right? Well, let me stop you. Yeah. This, this is because this is something that is I've not heard this before. I'm sure my listeners have not heard this before. So what does that mean? So, I mean, but if, but if they come at your door and start knocking at your door, a it's a very frightening experience to have Absolutely. authorities come to your door. They hold a piece of paper that is not really a warrant, but if they t but if they come in and then take you, they've got you. They've right? got you. Yes. 
But if you are careful and calm uh, and assertive in saying, I do not consent to your entry, I do not consent to the search, I do not want to speak to you, I want to speak with a lawyer, you may be able to subsequently assert your rights through litigation or through some kind of, like in very rare cases, um, you are able to suppress evidence that's obtained in that way. I mean, the key, the key point is you don't actually have to open your door unless a warrant that is signed by an actual judge is shown to you. How, in how some would you manner. know that? Well, I think so. That one of the things that we tell people is ask them to uh, show you the warrant through the peephole or ask them to show it through a window or slip it under the door. Ask, do you have a warrant signed by a judge? Um, you know, ask whether it names a person who's actually in the location at that time, because if it doesn't, you don't actually have to open the door. I think, you know, as someone who is a person of color, an immigrant and a lawyer, I fully understand how difficult it is and how nervous you can be when you're faced yeah. with these kinds of situations, both in the travel context and in the home context. Um, but people need to know that sometimes they are able to assert their rights um, if they, you know, if they do it calmly, if they don't run away, if they don't do things that sort of raise any alarms on the part of the police. If someone comes knocking at your door at 5 a.m. in the morning, you have every right to say, I am in the privacy of my home. I do not have, the, I do not have to open the door to you. And absent very exigent circumstances, which are not present by and large in ICE raids, people don't actually have to open the door. And that's, that's the, the, so the, the, the problem, of course, there is what you just described, which is the fear of the people right. inside the home because you have these authorities knocking at your door with in their in armor and they're banging at your door and there's a whole bunch of men and women outside trying to get in. Uh, you don't know who, what your rights are and it's a very fearful moment. So, but Anna, what I said earlier was, it's a question, if you do open the door, they do, they, they, they do snatch you and they take you to one of these three jails in the state of Maryland, then your chances of being deported are great, A, and B, it'll be very difficult for your lawyers to kind of get you out of where you are at that moment, right? Well, and one of the other problems is you're very likely to not have a lawyer. Um, right. So the other, the other large piece of this is that these are considered civil administrative proceedings, even though they have this tremendous impact on people's lives. And people don't have a right to, a, to an appointed lawyer, like you would in criminal, even for a minor criminal uh, offense. You, would have you do a, not you have a right to an appointed lawyer? You do not have a, a right to an appointed lawyer. Are so, you about to say what, Rena? I'm sorry. Just um, trying to I, I was going to say the exact same thing. Um, so I think there's a great awareness and, and maybe confusion caused by, you know, a lot of this um, pop culturalization of criminal justice shows, right? So people always hear that, you know, if you see someone getting arrested and then you hear the Miranda rights, you have a right to an attorney, blah, blah, blah. And people always assume that it applies to non-criminal cases, civil cases. And that's just not the case. So immigration is one of those types of cases, but there's so many others, right? So if people are about to lose their public benefits or people are about to be evicted or people are about, you know, not getting paid properly for their jobs or people are about to lose custody of their children, all of these fall into the civil justice category and there is no right to appointed counsel in those categories. So one of the greatest challenges um, for these sort of immigrants' rights community is the fact that now they're saying there's going to be a lot more people who could be caught in this sort of net. They're going to be detained. Um, their rights, first of all, those people themselves might not know their rights, and then they are not going to have lawyers at the ready. So there are some programs that sort of go into these detention centers, you know, meet with the people who are detained, try to figure out what their rights are and, and proceed to the, you know, uh, the next steps. Um, but the main problem facing Maryland right now and the main access to justice issue is that we don't have the funds to have lawyers for these people. Um, other cities have come out with, you know, saying that there's going to be um, de deportation, deportation defense forces, et cetera. But, um, you know, that, that is a huge challenge because if you don't have an attorney, you saw it in the Dulles, uh, you know, case in all the airports, who were the people that showed up and who were the people that put the pressure on and took individual cases and started talking and making the difference? Lawyers make a real difference in these scenarios, and we don't have enough of them. Let's take a very short break. Come right back to you, Nadine, and let you have your comment, folks. Do join us here at 410-319-8888. Milton, you're the first caller up. We'll come to your call in just a moment, and stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner. We are looking at the question of immigration this hour. Uh, with four women who are deeply involved in this, uh, in their work day to day. To answer your questions at 410-319-8888, you can email us at talk at sinusshow.org. 
You can tweet us at Mark Steiner. And I know the general nervousness about calling in about issues like this, but feel free to do that anonymously, anonymously if you wish. We are here with Maureen Sweeney, who is director of the Immigration Clinic at the University of Maryland Carey School of Law and founding member of the Maryland Immigration Rights Coalition. Uh, Serene Shabayo, who is a civil rights attorney in Washington, D.C., one of the organizers of the Dulles Justice Coalition, created in response to the recent travel bans, which I want to ask her about as well. Former director of the ACLU of Maryland's Immigrant Rights Program. Arena Shah is executive director of Maryland Access to Justice Commission and former director of Human Rights Project at the Maryland Legal Aid Bureau, and Nadine Wettstein, who heads the immigration program for the Maryland Office of the Public Defender and is formerly director of the American Immigration Council's Legal Action Center. And Nadine, you want to make a comment before we went to break? I'm um, sorry. Go ahead. Yes. So to explain that people, in addition to being arrested at homes, also can be and very, very frequently are arrested at probation offices, which I think is really unfortunate uh, when they report to probation um, as part of their um, criminal justice plan. Um, ICE is sometimes at the probation office. The probation office sometimes asks people to wait, and then ICE comes and picks them up, which is really very unfortunate. Has that happened a lot here? Yes, it happens a lot throughout the state of Maryland. It's really, Serene and I worked on a, a project to try to change that. So far, we've not been successful. But yes, the probation office cooperates with ICE fully. It's, it's very disconcerting. A state agency? Yes. So the governor could conceivably say, no, we're not going to do this. Absolutely. Yeah. And right. no governor has yet. Not yet, but. Neither the previous governor or this governor no, right now. That's right. So we certainly hope they do. Um, so other places where people are arrested is on work sites and in court. We're seeing, in fact, um, just last week at, in, at Howard uh, County Circuit Court, one of our clients was arrested by ICE, um, the three ICE agents Plain clothes were in the court waiting for the client's case to be postponed. The client was not convicted. The client walked out, was not in custody, walked out of the the courtroom in Howard County Circuit Court and was arrested um, by ICE agents. So let me ask this quick question, Nadine, before I turn back to Serene for a moment. And get, uh, and anybody, please, if, you, if I'm not, if you have something to say, just give me the eye and I'll make sure you have, <laughs> you, get, you get in. But, but so when you say your clients, mm -hmm. like, what kind of clients would those be? I mean, I'm not asking specifics, but like what would they be your client for? Mm -hmm. Okay, so they could be our client. So we have a case, uh, another case where I was actually present in the courtroom. A client was acquitted of a, um, a relatively minor misdemeanor charge and he had a, what, what's called a final order of removal. So ICE arrested him in front of me in the court, and this was in Montgomery County, in Montgomery County District Court, and as I said, in Howard County last week, it was in Circuit Court. Um, we've had clients arrested in, in Prince George's County. These are not major crimes we're talking about here. In fact, as we've said, I mean, people can be arrested, especially now under the new order, um, without any kind of conviction at all, just on ICE's belief that they committed some kind of a crime. Um, and so this, is the, this is the internal... Right, internal security. Internal security right. order. Exactly. And so, you know, we're not talking about felons. We're right. talking about people who may be charged with misdemeanors and are in district court, and they're not in custody. They're not in state custody, and they're walking out, and ICE is arresting them. So did you, did you want to add to that at all, Serene? Well, I mean, I would just wanted to kind of point out the really horrible policy implications of all of this stuff that's happening. Um, I mean, we're talking about the legal aspects of it, right? But it's very, very important for people to kind of express their resistance to these kinds of actions because when you have ICE at parole and probation officers, when you have them in courthouses, when you have them knocking on people's doors, what you're creating is an atmosphere of terror where people are actually afraid to go to law enforcement. People who have very minor convictions where the purpose of probation is to actually help rehabilitate or you know, deal with underlying substance abuse issues or things like that. You have those people who are now afraid to go to the place that is support, supposed to be helping them because of this kind of pipeline to deportation that exists between very minor contacts with criminal justice. And, you know, it must be said that when you know that if you stop someone for a broken taillight, you can send them right to deportation proceedings, that's a very strong incentive if you happen not to like people who look a certain way, um, to actually pull them over for, for pretextual reasons or for no reason at all. And it's not, I'm not being hyperbolic, this is actually the kinds of cases that we used to see 
before the Obama administration tried to sort of narrow the scope of, of interior enforcement only to people who should matter. And I mean, I say this as someone who fought very hard against Obama administration policies, actually all of us, that we felt were, were violating civil rights. But this is beyond the pale because it's going after people who really pose no threat, who might have strong claims to relief from deportation. Like once they get in deportation proceedings, they actually might be able to stay here but they're being treated like criminals and they're being kind of turned around and sent right back out without having the chance to go through the process that they should go through. So we have a number of callers, but let me ask a quick question here. I want to get right to the calls. Um, Maureen, we, during the break, Maureen and, and we knew we were talking about the, these two specific cases and the legality of what happened. One was, you mentioned, Rena, the, 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 the Indian woman, Indian American woman, uh, who's a citizen. She may have even been born here, if I'm correct. I'm not sure if we're But her parents, I think, I think she, at any rate, she was taken into custody question, can, you, can the police just stop a man or a woman walking in the street because they look like they're not white Americans and take them into, and take them into nope. custody and question their citizenship? Is that allowed? No. <laughs> <laughs> That's a simple yeah. answer. That's a yeah. hard, no, hard no whether or not but, there's a 287G agreement, by the way. Nobody right. is allowed to do that. But how can they do that then? How, how come nobody's taking action against that, the, the Bel Air Police Department, whoever it was, Hartford County Sheriff's Department, for just picking up a woman because she has brown skin and taking her asking a question about her, about her citizenship. Well, she'd have right. to decide if she wants to. She'd have to decide yeah. to make she'd that right. She'd have to right, decide right, if she right, wants to right, sue. So. Right, right, right. And she may not want to do that. Right. So it's, a, it's an important <laughs> point that everybody has Fourth Amendment rights against unreasonable search and seizure. No matter what their immigration status, they have those rights. Whether they can enforce them or not in immigration court is a, is a tougher question. But you have the right to not be stopped on account of your race. You have a right to not be detained unless the officer has some reasonable suspicion that you have committed some kind of criminal offense. Um, even ICE officers can't detain somebody unless they have reasonable suspicion that they have committed an immigration offense, which does not just mean being foreign. It's not an offense to be foreign. It's not an offense to look foreign. And people need to understand that. And people are going to have to stand up and start asserting those rights. I mean, I really think that what's going to one of the things that's going to continue to have local jurisdictions not want to be involved in this kind of thing is when people do stand up and sue for this kind of misenforcement uh, and this kind mm -hmm. of racial profiling. There are tremendous incentives to racially profile. So we have a number of callers. Let me just, I mean, then I do want to get, uh, get to phones. Then we'll come right back to everybody. I just Gina? wanted to throw out some numbers. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in Maryland right now, we have about 904,000 uh, foreign-born immigrants. So that means they were either born uh, 904,000? Right. Either born in a foreign country and then emigrated here and then, you know, uh, have become citizens or haven't. And about there's a 50-50 split. So about 446,000 of those are citizens and about 457,000 of those are permanent residents, right? So that's a big portion, half and half, of people who are citizens and who are not. And, and what about everyone's the, are sort of undocumented in that number as well? That the, the undocumented number is not part of that. Those okay. statistics are harder to find. Right, but even I imagine, yeah, right. right. But yeah, even there if you just think of how many people are here that are, <laughs> you know, foreign born of a different color that could be caught up in this just because there's xenophobia about people who look different. So let me go to the phones here. And I do want to ask the come to the question of Guadalupe Garcia and what that story was and how she could be detained. What happened to her? Because it sounds like an everyday occurrence for someone who's an immigrant going to check their status. Let me go to the phones first at 410-319-8888. Milton, you're on the air. Welcome. Yes, thanks, uh, Mark. I'm um, not even sure if my comment makes a whole bunch of sense with the group of folks you got talking with you today. But it kind of goes back to whole, I mean, the length of years of conversation about immigrants or illegal immigrants or undocumented immigrants. It seems, as I sit back and listen over these years, the, the language just kind of sounds kind of... I remember uh, uh, President Bush mentioned something about fuzzy math. I'm thinking along those terms. The language seems to be a little bit fuzzy and tricky for me. And here's why I, what, what I want to say. I think of people who have two houses, like somebody from like Maine or Canada who may have a, a southern house, you know, like for winter, and they come there to, to, to stay in that southern house in Florida or whatever, and, and somebody has kind of moved into their house through the back door or however, and they're living there. Now, do the people who own that house have a right to, 
to evict those people who are basically squatting there? Or do those people have rights? I keep hearing about illegal immigrants' rights. No offense to anybody. I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to take sides. I just keep listening to stuff that sounds kind of funny to me. People, undocumented immigrants having rights, does not the owner of the house have a right to evict them, just like the United States has laws that we, don't we have a right? Didn't President Obama have a right to send people back to wherever? Or doesn't President Trump have a right? Now, if the laws are wrong, then change the laws. But as the laws are, don't the United States have a right to enforce the okay, laws? Okay, that, that, fair question. Who wants to be the one to grab the answers to Nilton's question? I'm going to dive right in here. Right <laughs> this is Serene. So I would just like to reframe this a little bit, okay. right? So. Uh, number one, when somebody comes to the border, for example, seeking asylum because they are fleeing persecution or hardship or violence in their home countries, that is not an illegal act. That's actually perfectly legal and lawful under domestic law, international law. You can come in, you can ask for asylum, and you should go through the process and really you shouldn't be detained for the duration of the time, which is what, what's actually happening here. So that's one point. Another point is, why don't we consider what you would have to be escaping to take a trip across a desert and face thirst and hunger and possible death and attacks by, you know, and being taken advantage of by smugglers and coyotes and the guard dogs that are let the out on you near the border. Right, right, the human coyotes. And then the actual dogs that, that Customs and Border Protection use along the border. Um, the, the, you know, carrying your children in your arms, escaping something that is so horrifying that you are willing to actually, you know, take that trip to come here. I just think there's a human element to this that really keeps getting lost when we talk about legal and illegal. Um, if you come here on a visa and you overstay by one day, you become quote unquote not in illegal. Um, I really hate to use that term, but I'm just saying like there's so many ways in which our system tags you as being illegal and our immigration laws are broken and, and there were many, many attempts to reform them that were obstructed and stopped and didn't really come to fruition. I think that the better way to think about this is why are people actually coming here? Because we need them. There was a story yesterday about Alabama crops that are going, that are rot, rotting because there's nobody to actually pick those crops because people are now afraid to go there because of all the anti-immigrant laws that have been passed. There is definitely, like, the, the layers of problems um, around the ways that we talk about immigrants are just, you know, uncountable, I have to say. Does anybody want to tackle that very quickly before we move on to the um, next caller? I certainly sympathize with the caller's thoughts about this. I, I mean, I certainly understand how he, how he feels. Um, but one, and Serene touched on this briefly, there have been attempts to change the immigration, the U.S. immigration law for decades, and they have failed. And for people to immigrate legally, you know, people often say, why don't they get in line? Well, there is no functioning line is the problem. People wait for decades. Um, people may be married to U.S. citizens. They may have U.S. citizen children. We have a lot of mixed families in this country. And it is just takes decades um, to actually obtain legal status if you if you even can, just because of how dysfunctional our immigration law is. So a very quick question here. I do want to go right back to the phones and come to the Guadalupe's case, which I really think is important to talk about. Um, Marina, I, I, this comes up a lot of our program. Um, I think about my grandparents, my father's parents, who came and fled Eastern Europe and came here uh, in like 1905. They, I mean, there weren't visas. No, it the system is, I mean, was very right. different. You, 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 the, you, they had a boat. The boat landed in Baltimore, which was the second largest point of immigration at that point in the United States after New York. And they got a boat, and you said, they said, well, you look healthy, you can stay. You don't look healthy, you get back on the boat. Well, that's, right? a, that's exactly right. There were, there were very minimal um, criteria that they used to screen out undesirable types. Right. Now, what's interesting to think about is the difference, though, between what happened on the East Coast and what happened on the West Coast because it, that also uh, points to the long history of racist exclusion in the United States. Our mm -hmm. first immigration law was something called the Chinese Exclusion Act, mm -hmm. which was exactly what it sounded like. And until the middle of the 20th century, Asians and Chinese specifically, but also uh, most, I think all Asians, were excluded from citizenship in the US because of their race. Uh, so we have this long history. We also have a long history of understanding that migration is part of what made our country. You know, like your grandparents, my great-grandparents. Um, this, these are, this is how we came to be who we are. 
Uh, and our law, even now, has not just rules about who needs to be excluded or who needs to be deported, but also lots of rules about how people come to become green card holders and citizens. There's this whole positive part of the migration story that is being shut out uh, about people who come here to work and to share their skills, their medical skills or their technical professional skills with us, uh, who come as family members and then become part of our community and then uh, are, are part of that American story. So the, 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 the immigration story, the migration story is complicated and is not just a, um, it's not just a binary, legal, illegal. Right. Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's what I'm going to get. I think it's a complex story that we really need to understand, and we don't really understand that story. So, but before we go, Judy, your next caller up, can I come right to your call here? But I want you to, before we run out of time, raise the issue of Guadalupe Garcia and what happened to her when she uh, went to the immigration center, so we can describe it better than I, mm -hmm. uh, because she had to check in, and then they arrested her, which she's been doing every year for 21 years whatever number that was. So what, what happened there, and, and who has to be frightened of that now? Well, she was deportable. She had an, what we call an order of deportation, but the government had decided because of her situation they were going to exercise some discretion, exercise some gentleness, and allow her to stay. But um, now they decided that under this new administration, they decided no more discretion, no more gentleness, we're going to deport her. So that's basically what happened. So yes, that definitely can and, and is going to be happening more and more as we Why, What was it about her case that she had to report in that other people do not? What it was that she was reporting into? She was reporting into the, the Immigration Customs Enforcement. Um, and, and why did she have to do that? Well, as I said, she had been ordered deported, so she had this sort of pending order, but then uh, they had said to her, you just have to, it's sort of, she was on basically like a probation, probation kind of Probation, what it sounded like, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Well, and, and that was, as I understand it, because of her family situation. The uh, Obama administration had decided that though she had this order of removal, she was not a priority for removal because she wasn't dangerous and she had ties to U.S. citizen children here. And um, but she nonetheless had the obligation to report probably once a year. I don't know specifically, but a lot of people report once a year to ICE just to say that they're continuing to comply. And rather than allow her to continue for the, her 22nd year, uh, they took her. And because she had already the order of deportation, she didn't have a right to see a judge, and they were able to just, just deport her immediately. So what does that say for men and women now in the in Maryland who? Not, not know what, don't know what to do. People I know who maybe their mother has been with him for the last 30 years, 25 years, whatever. She's not a citizen. She's here. What happens? Well, I, w I would say all those people should consult with an immigration attorney um, because the laws are very complicated and they may have some right to stay that they are unaware of. Um, there's not going to be an answer for everybody. And yeah. I mean, I think her story is really kind of indicative of the tragedy of our immigration laws and the way that they tear families apart. Because her situation, for example, the reason she was deportable is because many, many years ago, she committed one minor offense that made her deportable. And that's why she had an order of deportation against her that the Obama administration was sort of not was saying, we're not going to enforce against you because of your family situation. But this is someone who is a longtime you know, resident of the United States, has children who are U.S. citizens and et cetera. One initiative that's sort of worth throwing out there, United We Dream, which is this organization created by so-called dreamers who came here as children, um, is organizing this. You can go to their site and sign up to show up for uh, check-ins. So a lot of people in the immigration uh, system do have to check into ICE, either because they have a pending uh, you know, removal case that's going on or for a variety of reasons, they're not detained, but they have to come and check in periodically. Um, and so they are organizing this kind of push to go and protest when people are checking in or be there or connect the person to a lawyer so that um, there's at least some public pressure to say, don't deport this person. Uh, because, you know, not everybody has a legal remedy, but sometimes if you stand up and make a show of support, there might be some assistance that, that you can provide as someone who is not under threat in that way. Go ahead, Shane, then I'll go to the phone right after this. Um, I'll just add that, you know, I think um, what happened at the airports when the Muslim ban went into effect was really, you know, kind of shocked people and drove people to action. So you had lawyers showing up, you had protesters showing up, you just had this pushback. But with these other sort of the other uh, executive orders, it's so sort of, uh, first, it's already been happening. 
right? And there's not that, so now they have the splashy kind of ice raids and maybe that brings more attention, but it really requires um, Marylanders and people here to say, no, immigrants are our friends. They're our neighbors. They're part of our community. They've been here for years. They try to have these divisions between undocumented and not. But now you're you're throwing in everybody in a mixed bag. And I think people in Maryland have to really stand up and say, this is important. You can't just go around doing this. And so that requires a level of protest that is not going to be sparked by something that's so shocking. And so, you know, there's going to be an immediate call to action. There's many things that already exist. You know, a lot of organizations that are working on the ground to change policy, change laws, some very specific things. There is an act right now in the Maryland legislature, the Trust Act, which Nadine referenced, that talks about how how can, you know, Maryland um, protect itself? Uh, how how do those organizations, the, lo- the local jurisdictions, not have to do um, what the federal government is saying that they, they must, you know, that that they have to work with ICE agents, et cetera. But on the local level, too, you know, local counties are making these decisions. And I think Marylanders can go out and, and talk to their local politicians and say, we are against this. I think that could be very forceful, just mm-hmm. as people are protesting many other things. This is something that people should speak out about because these are neighbors. These are people who are, you know, add to our community. Um, and, and the last thing I would say is, you know, with giving, a uh, giving can be a powerful force. There, there is a need for a deportation force. There is a need for lawyers to be representing, and there's not enough of them. So, if you're a lawyer, then you know, sign up to do an immigration case. Sign up to go to a detention center and visit people and see what kind of rights they have, and go to a hearing with them. If you're, in, you know, you speak a different language, there's opportunities for you to do that too. And if you can't do any of those and you want to give, we have seen the amount of giving that has happened. For example, the ACLU has received tons of money, but the ACLU doesn't do everything, and especially the local work on the ground. We wanted to talk about the Maryland Immigration Rights uh, Network oh, Coalition, oh. excuse me. Merck, um, that lists a lot of different opportunities for people to give there and then also volunteer. So I think all of those things are really important. But, you know, either give your um, talent, treasure, uh, I don't, what's the last T? Time. Time. I would just correct that it's, so the, it's the Maryland Immigrant, immigrant Rights Coalition. Coalition. Apologies. Right. And so we'll yeah. do the co- so. I'm going to get a quick call in here and do a, a comment. I mean, let you all give the context information out so people know how to find uh, all this at four one zero three one nine eighty eight eighty eight. Judy, you're on the air. Welcome. Morning. On afternoon. Um, I the only thing that I'm seeing, and it seems like it's going to be another issue with this. If they're deporting all these people, don't some of these people own their homes and their cars, have savings accounts? Who's going to be responsible for taking the the these these things away from these people? And where are they going to hold all these things? That's a really interesting question. I never thought about that at all. <laughs> People well, lose all kinds of property when they get picked up. Um, and they, we had a client a number of years ago who had uh, an apartment full of the kinds of things that your apartment is full of and uh, was picked up by ICE, um, was held for over nine months. Uh, she ultimately won her case, so she was not deported, but she lost everything because she had nobody to go recover her, her belongings. Yeah. And, and they children, children too. Right. Children too. Yeah, more importantly yeah. than possessions. Right. And what yeah. Children who end up in foster care or who end up, you know, kind of bouncing around from relative to relative. Some of these are U.S. citizen children. Um, it's just really astonishing the degree to which these, uh, when these things are not considered in immigration enforcement, it kind of creates a lot of harm in the community. So let me get one more quick thought from a listener, and then we have to uh, get this information and close out of four one zero three one nine eighty eight eighty eight. Tom, uh, very quick thought. Go ahead. Real quick. Oh. I was a construction inspection inspector for many years. I worked with guys and gals from Kenya, Liberia, Nigeria, and uh, Central America. I found these people to be hardworking, decent people. And if I had my choices, I'd much rather live next door to an ordinary than to Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> Tom, thank you so much. I'll take 10,000 <laughs> refugees for one Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> a good bumper sticker. But um, So contact information. You wanted to make sure the information got out about Ada find and connect. Well, the Maryland Immigrant Rights Coalition website is org. Okay. so that's easy. 
Uh, and they have a list there of uh, links to other organizations and, and concrete things that people can do if they, if they want to respond. Another organization that goes to the, that Rena mentioned goes to the jails in Maryland where people are held by ICE is the Care Coalition, and they also place lawyers and they and they do a great job. So that's another organization. And that's C A I R Coalition, dot org. Okay, right. So one of the things we can do, I guess, on this show, just to play our part, is if you have that information for us, we can add that to our underwriting every day, to put it out there so people know how to be in touch and where to go. Uh, so, you know, then protecting our fellow uh, folks, f- f- brothers and sisters here in, in Maryland and around the country who are listening to know where to go, we can do that. At least we can do that small bit on the stage. Rena. I'll just say also the know your rights. So people, if they specifically want to know, you know, should they answer their door, should they not? What are my specific rights if something happens? I think the ACLU of Maryland does have information there. Right. And there's other resources that we can send yeah. to you where there's specific know your rights information. Please do. of the Maryland also has very good know your rights that are more specific to Maryland. Um, the ACLU has kind of general nationwide ones, um, but Casa de Maryland is a good place to go for Know Your Rights for Immigrants. Also. So we'll have, so we, we get the information, we'll put it on the air as part of our daily yeah. announcements, people so it's nowhere to go. Uh, Serene Shabaya, who just heard, is a civil rights attorney in Washington, D.C., one of the organizers of the Dulles Justice Coalition, former director of the ACLU of Maryland's Immigrant Rights Program. Good to have you in the studio, Serena. Good to see you Great again. Great to be here again. Rena Shaw is executive director of the Maryland Access to Justice Commission, former director of the Human Rights Project at Maryland Legal Aid Bureau. Good to have you in the studio. Thank you for your help with today's show, by the way. Thank you. Uh, and Maureen Sweeney is director of the Immigration Clinic at the University of Maryland School of Law and founding member of the Maryland Immigrant Rights Coalition. Good to have you in the studio. Thank you so much, Happy Maureen. Nadine Wetstein, Wetstein is uh, heads the immigration program for the Maryland Office of the Public Defender. Formerly, she was director of the American Immigration Council's Legal Action Center. Nadine, great to meet you and good to have you in the studio. Thank you, Mark. On the way out of here, I want to uh, say, uh, remember a dear friend who passed away last night, someone who was a giant, uh, Clinton Bamberger. His wife left us in December. Uh, he was one of the founders of the Legal Services Corporation, helped write the South African Constitution after Mandela uh, was released from prison. Uh, he did many, many other things. He was uh, one of the great human rights fighters. They both were Catherine and Clinton, and we miss them a great deal. Uh, and he loved my chili, so we are now renaming <laughs> my chili the Bamberger Chili. And uh, we just want to give our condolences to everybody and all of us who lost these two giants uh, of human rights in the state of Maryland and our country and our world. The Mark Steiner Show is brought to you in part by the Maryland State Education Association. From limiting over testing to protecting public school funding, you can learn more about the issues facing Maryland students, parents, and schools by visiting the Maryland State Education Association's website at MarylandEducators.org. That's MarylandEducators.org. Or SteinerShow.org is Maryland State Education Association's banner. The Mark Steiner Show is a production of the Center for Emerging Media. Our senior producer is Mark Henry. Our producer is Amani Spence. Our research producer is Calvin Perry. Our production assistant is Nadia Ramlagan. Our intern here is the Morgan Senior, Michael Dixon. Our engineer is Andrea Melton. Theme music by Wal Matthews of Clean Cuts. Send me your thoughts about today's program to talk at steinershow.org, the podcast of Mark Steiner Show, and share with your friends. Visit us on the web at steinershow.org or listen to us via your favorite podcasting app. And for your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, I'm Mark Steiner. Take care.